Folks, a quick message from our sponsors, Know Before. So what's a con game? It's a fraud that works by getting the victim to misplace their confidence in the con artist. In the world of cybersecurity, we call confidence tricks social engineering. And as our sponsors, Know Before, will tell you, human error is how most organizations are compromised. What are some of the ways organizations are victimized by social engineering? We'll find out here in just a minute. Now, our sponsors' questions about forms of social engineering come in this form. Know Before will tell you that there's human contact, there can be con games. It's important to build the kind of security culture in which your employees are enabled to make smart security decisions. To do that, they need a new school security awareness training. See how security culture stacks up against Know Before's free phishing test. Get it now at knowbefore.com forward slash phishing test. That's knowbefore.com forward slash fishing test. Now, no before wants to thank you for listening to the show and I want to thank them for sponsoring it. They are the provider of the world's largest security awareness and simulated fishing platform. Be sure to take advantage of their free fishing test, which you can find at knowbefore.com forward slash fishing test. Think no before for your security training. Hey everyone, James Azar here for this week's CISO Talk. Are you ready for an awesome episode? Kevin Gowan, the CISO over at Synovus, is going to be joining me in just a minute for today's episode, and it's going to be an epic one, so don't go anywhere. Before we do that, though, thank you for tuning in to the CISO Talk podcast. Thank you for everyone who subscribed, shared, comments. Thank you. Without you, the show wouldn't be where it is. Please make sure to subscribe. Please make sure to share. Follow the CyberHub podcast on all of your favorite social medias. We're now also on Twitch. You can go and find the CyberHub podcast on Twitch, where I'll be streaming a lot more uh, information in the next several months and years as we go and go along with the show. I've got an awesome show today, so don't go anywhere. After you subscribe, after you tune in, make sure you also give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast store. Go to the CyberHub Podcast YouTube channel and subscribe there as well. If you're not already a subscriber, go and check it out. I have some exclusive content only on YouTube. And now, without further ado, let's not waste any more time and let's bring up Kevin. Here we go, folks. It's CISO Talk Time. From the CyberHub Bunker and Studio, you're listening to the CISO Talk Podcast. No sales. No bullshit, just straight talk. Straight talk. And now for your host and CISO, James Azar. Kevin, welcome to the show. How's it going? Great, James. Great. I'm happy to be here. I've been excited about the chance to come visit with you. And I love, I want to thank you for what you do for all of us in the security community to give us the chance to share our, our thoughts and our message and, and the collaboration it helps drive. It's awesome. So happy well, to be here. Real excited. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's that's very kind of you to say. Um, I think that our goal in security is to create partnerships, right? And, yeah. you know, it seems like uh, it used to be that as CISOs, right, or organizations, security was almost on its own island, right? Uh, yeah. Think of it as kind of like Iceland or Greenland, out in the middle of nowhere, you're on your own <laughs> island, you're not really in touch with anything else. They're just like, hey, guy, do what you got to do, right? Yeah. And that's not how security works. Security is kind of like Chicago or Kansas City or St. Louis, right? It's the heartbeat of, you know, east, west, north, south kind yeah. of uh, uh, movement within a place. And, and I say St. Louis for those who don't know, St. Louis used to be Central America, it used to be the gateway to the west, right? And it's the first place it was the first commercial airport in america i believe was in st louis so a lot of people don't know that it's a fun fact something new you learn on the show i I have learned one new fact already james so we're off to a great start i love it kevin let's talk a little bit about how you got started in security what was your career journey like um and 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 how you how long you've been in your current role and and, and what's that like yeah so i'll start backwards i've been the CISO here for about six and a half years i've been with the bank for just over 25 years. I tell people that and kind of look at me like 25 years in one place. Um, So it's kind of an interesting route. Um, I started out, I'm an engineer by background. So my first job was with IBM and I was an engineer back when mainframes cost millions of dollars and filled entire rooms, right? To show how much time has passed. Um, But over time, I then moved to, came to Synovus and I had a technology role. 
So I had a lot of experience and exposure to technology. Then I took on a role that was really more risk focused. So I ran our procurement and third party risk management organization. And that's really where kind of the, the arc of my career took me toward this. Um, you know, a lot of focus on risk and how you translate risk into business terms. So then when the CISO role opened up here, um, I was a little surprised. I, I recall the dumbfounded look I had on my face when our CEO said, you know, 18 hours after our previous CISO had left, uh, I want you to take on the CISO role. I was like, how'd you come up with that? And well, you know, you have a background in technology, you have a background in risk. Um, you have an engineering background. You're a smart guy. You've worked across the lines of business and have relationships with the executives and the board and the regulators. Those are the key boxes you need to check. So it was, it was interesting. When I talk to younger leaders in our company, you know, I tell them I've had probably four different careers here in 25 years at Synovus. And you can't necessarily plan on them. Just look for opportunities to take on new things, learn new things, put more stuff in your toolbox. Um, and, but I do occasionally look around, James, I got to tell you and think, how did I get here? How did this happen? But in a good way. Well, imposter syndrome is real, even for systems, right? <laughs> Sometimes we sit in a room and we're just like, um, who am I sitting with again? Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, a shout out to Patrick and the NTSC. We're both we're both members of. And sometimes you sit in one of those meetings, you know, when we do our annual and you look around the room and you go, huh, what am I doing in this room? Do I belong here? Like you question yourself a little bit. Oh, yeah. You know? uh, yeah. I, I find myself doing that quite often sometimes. Um, and, and I think that's a natural part of our career path, because if you think of every other career, Right. So if you look at a chief marketing officer, chief operating officer, chief finance officer, they have lawyers, accountants, they have a traditional role. You go to school, you get a degree, you pass the exams, you get certified, you start off as a junior, you're work your way up. Eventually, you're a partner, you're a C suite executive, and so is life. Or you get stuck in some middle management role. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Security mm -hmm. doesn't have that. That doesn't exist for us. That's true. Yeah, the, there, a there's, point. there's no one singular way to become a CISO. There's no one yeah. singular way to be an analyst. There's no one singular way to be a security engineer. You can you do know, that's one of the things I think that makes the whole security community so tight knit and supportive of one another uh, is that there are so many different paths and everybody brings something to the table that complements other people's knowledge and perspective. You know, it's like you think about more outlook into higher people. Right. You're not saying, OK, I need I need the computer science grad or someone out of a cybersecurity program. There's all sorts of folks who have experience and background and skills that they're going to be applicable. Um, and it's just a much wider net that we probably would ever think about. And it leads to people like me becoming CISOs. I love that you brought up a great topic here, which is kind of naturally the next topic I want to talk about. One of the biggest challenges we have in security is hiring. Right. People breaking in. I mentor yeah. about, I think uh, today I'm mentoring about 15 or 16 people in their journey to become cybersecurity practitioners. Yeah. And some of them I know are built for sales roles within our, our beloved, you know, partner security partner community. Yeah. And some of them are going to be the, in, in 10 years, they might be the next group of CISOs I have on my show 10 years yeah. from now. Right. And none of them are coming from a traditional path. None of them are, are kind of going through all of those. But then there's a challenge. I think uh, I saw a post last week from Naomi Buckwalter. Um, I think it was Naomi. I'm not sure. I may have to retract that. Um, but someone said that 72% of the entry-level jobs posted on LinkedIn for security required mm -hmm. a CISP. Hmm. It's crazy. What, yeah. you know, yeah. what are yeah. some of the skills you look for when you're hiring people at an entry-level position? But also, yeah. I think our biggest shortage in security, and I'm going to get off my soapbox here in just a moment, but I think we have – I, I want to base my question into two parts. One, okay. what do you look for for entry-level roles? Yep. Number two, I think our biggest shortage in security today isn't entry-level, but it's mid-level to high-level management, meaning we don't have um, – enough talent to lead teams in the middle stack of our, of our security. I think that's where our biggest shortfall is. Yeah. I think that's, a, I think that's a, that's such a great point, you know, and I, I, I connect the dots in a bunch of different ways. You know, one is um, 
we talk about the talent shortage we all face, right? So we should be thinking about how do we make that talent pool as big as possible? And that's kind of opening your thoughts up to what are the kind of things that really matter as opposed to what are the things that are easy to ask for, right? It's easy to ask for a list of certifications, but is that really what's going to matter? You know, the, 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 what are the questions I get from people, particularly people who were say in college, thinking about their career is, you know, should I, should I focus on Splunk or QRadar, right? Just pick some at random. And the reality is that it's not about the tools. Whatever tools you're studying now are useful in that you'll have spent some time with hands-on stuff. You'll understand concepts. Wherever you go, the tools will be different. And even if they're the same tool when you get there in three years, they'll all be different anyway. So it's really not about tools. But um, when it comes to, so talk about the, the second part first, which is the, the, the mid-term kind of yeah. experience. Yeah. So the management piece, I think, is, is, is critical. And I was having this discussion with one of our team members that I mentor who was saying, I really think I have an interest in leadership. What do you think is important? And do you think that makes sense? I said, well, gosh, it absolutely makes sense because you end up, you always have the risk when I look at leaders, you have people that can manage, you know, I can direct work, but I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily good at leading people. How do I build a strategy, create a vision, rally people to come with me and get someplace, right? To get people that can manage the work and lead both is really good. But then on top of that, you need people that also understand the work they're leading. Right. And in a field like ours, that is so critical. And you're right. That's a, that's a really tough gap. You have people that are good at one or good at the other. And how do you kind of coach them up? And the people that can do both are, to your point, a scarce and critical resource. I think we probably need to – I was thrilled that this you know very early career professional asked me that question because now I can be thinking about how do I help her by helping her grow and develop and learn and start to build those skills now. You know, learn how to present stuff to me as an executive in a non-threatening, safe way where I can give you feedback and coaching you can develop before I turn you loose with a whole bunch of the rest of the executive team where it's going to be a little scarier and, you know, first time, right? So um, I think developing those kind of skills, you're right, is, is, is critical. And obviously it's finding the balance when you're looking at mid-career kind of people to bring in. Um, how do they strike that balance between subject matter knowledge that you need if they're mid-career or late-career and demonstrated ability to, to actually lead people, you know, to help drive an organization forward, to build a strategy and then see it to fruition um, and to be able to navigate all the other things that come along, the, the prioritization and having to build your and make your case for funding for your key initiatives and selling your ideas and your strategy and your plan um, to the rest of the executive team. Yeah, it's um, it's almost when you look at those mid-tier roles, you're, you know, I, I brought someone on who was going through a career transition, never worked a day in security, but was a business person, understood business, knew how to build relationships, and he had the intangible leading qualities that you want with someone. Now, he didn't have the technical chops, and my concern was could he lead a team effectively if he didn't have the technical chops? And then I was kindly reminded by a very special person on our team, and she said, James, you always say you can teach people technical. You can't teach them intangibles. So teach them technical. And yeah. I said, huh, here I am uh, walking shoeless as, you know, a shoe salesman, <laughs> right? Um, but, but we often get blinded by it because we're under so much pressure. Um, we have a lot of things on our mind that sometimes yeah. we, we, we forget the most basics of things when it comes to making a decision. And I'm glad I've got a team that I've empowered to, to be in a way where they go, you're wrong, mister. Um, and we're going to tell you why you're wrong. Yeah. And we know that you're not going to get mad at us because if we prove you wrong with logic, you're you're going to, you know, love us all a little bit more. And that's that's very true. I think that's important. Yeah. Uh, it's easier I, to do I, that. Ideally, I'd, have, I'd be surrounded by people that are all way smarter. Right. Because my role is not to be the smartest guy in the room. And I tell right. them, look, if you're coming to if you bring me your technical issue because you need a decision, I'll give you a decision. But you need to know your decision, your recommendations on what I should do are going to be way better than the decision I'm going to make. And you just throw a bunch of options to the table and leave me to sort through. So don't put me in that spot. Because if I end up making your decisions, why are you here? But the reality is you're going to bring much more to it. You want to build an organization of people that recognize that's what you want from them. 
you know, bring your knowledge, make your case, step forward. Um, and that's how they grow and develop too. It's a win-win. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the entry-level role though, because the entry-level yeah. roles are very tricky, right? Like I said, 72% of entry-level roles on LinkedIn and job postings require assist. Which you and I both know you can't get unless you've got five years in the industry. <laughs> yeah. So, so wh- why are we missing the eight ball so much? Why is it so hard for people to break in? You know, yeah, I, th- I think we make it overly complicated. You know, I reflected on this because I had one of my I do a monthly chat with my entire team, um, and just take random questions. And one of them was exactly that. You know, what what are you looking for? Um, I think it was phrased as "What makes for a superb team member," which I thought was a great way to ask the question. Um, so, so things I think of, one is for me, I look for people that have a high energy level. You know, you got to, we're in a really difficult demanding field. You're going to, you're going to get knocked around a bunch of times. You're going to deal with more bad stuff than good stuff. You got to be able to bring your A game all the time because we all know our adversaries are bringing their A game. So I think high energy level, be able to convey that. Um, I think the ability to communicate, and I don't mean like I can stand up and give a presentation, but I can share my point of view if there's a problem, I can articulate what it is. Um, so the ability to communicate, um, you know, I think people people think of leadership as something that managers and senior level people do. And I remind them, look, you, you have an opportunity to lead in everything you do. So help me understand, show me how you've led, how have you influenced others? You know, and for people that are at entry level, what have you done in, you know, community organizations you've been in or school organizations or project teams you've worked on? where you've had to help influence and, and you know, lead a team forward to a place. Because I think that's a core skill you need to have. Um, you know, I'm always looking for people to show they did their homework. You know, when someone shows up, I love to ask people in an interview setting, what questions do you have for me? And the ones that don't have any questions, like, did you actually do any, did you put any thoughts, you do any research? You know, show that you're inquisitive. Because I always tell folks, I think that one of the things I, I was told early in my career by some folks I, I really respected was learn to ask good questions, be inquisitive, right? Because that's how you're going to learn. That's how it sh- you know it shows people that you're really engaged, you care about understanding, um, and sometimes the questions help you understand what people are actually thinking and gain some insight into where they're coming from. So I think that's an important piece. Um, you know, I think self awareness is really important. Yeah. You know, people should expect yeah, the question of, you know, what do you do really well and where are you trying to improve? Be honest. Show that you have some self-awareness because it's like, now I'm good. I got it all covered. Right. That's not credible with anybody. And you and I know over time you need to have that. You know, there's things you're better at than others. Um, so I yeah. think that's important. I, I, I get asked that all the time. <laughs> you know, like, what are you not good at? And I was like, a lot of things. I'm probably not good at more things than things I'm good at. Right. <laughs> But but the best thing I'm good at is recognizing when I'm being told the truth and when I'm being, you know, oh my gosh, yeah, blown smoke up my rear end. And when there's yeah. when you're trying to blow smoke up my rear end, I'm going to call you out on it. And that's not a very yeah. fun conversation that we're going to have. But Boy, that's you know, that's that's spot on. I was telling a colleague who had stepped into a new role. I said the most important thing you need to figure out in your new organization is whose judgment can you trust. Yeah, and who do you need to ask a lot of questions of? Right, because if you can't sort that out, then then it's going to be a little bumpy for a while until you until you do figure that out. Um, you know, the other thing that, that I love to see people who 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 recognize you don't want to wait for permission to do your job. Right? This is we don't have jobs where people give you a list of list of to dos. Here's your task for the day. Go do. Right? I tell them I tell my team all the time. Y'all are empowered. You wouldn't be in the chair if I didn't trust you to act. Don't be crazy, but you're empowered. Right. And if you make a mistake, that's what that's why that's how we coach. That's how we learn. But don't wait around for permission. You don't want people who are timid. Right. And I guess yeah. the last thing is to just be a great teammate. You know, you want to be the person that when people think of who's going to help me, who do I go to? Who's going to focus on solving the problem instead of creating a problem? Be one of those people. You want to be one of the 20 percent that's seen as doing 80 percent of the work. Yeah. It's um, you, you brought up something so, so important that being timid and mm. so often people are um, af- af- afraid of making decisions. And I oh constantly have to remind people in security, even people in mentoring, don't be afraid to make a decision, even if it's a bad one, as long as you can back up the decision you're making. So if you, you know, if, if you make a bad decision and I come to you and I say, you know, X, why did you make this very bad decision? And they go, 
why told me. Well, you and I are going to have a conversation about why you shouldn't be listening to why. <laughs> right? Yeah, but sure. if you come to me and you say, well, here was my thought process and let me whiteboard kind of what I went through. And yeah. these are all the things I've gone through. This was my decision-making matrix. And this is how I reached this conclusion. What part of the formula did I miss? You know, and it kind of takes me back to showing your work in math when we were younger, right? Because yep. you and yep. I went to school in, in a time where you had to show work for your answers. Yep. You know, my daughter today, they don't always have to show work for answers. And I'm just like, I don't understand that. But the way we did our work was how the teacher understood how we got to the result yes. we got to. Yep. And the point of showing your work is to understand your thought process, your problem solving skills. Yeah. And I can fix those skills if you show me work. I can't do it if you're, you know, randomly, yeah. you know, relying on others. Yeah. I, I'm going to, I'm going to steal that one from you if you don't mind about showing your work. Cause you, yeah, that's such a great way to phrase it. Help me understand how you thought about it. Cause then we can learn from that as opposed to right. you just, yeah, you just asked Joe or Sue and they told me to do it. Well, yeah, let's talk about your judgment in that case. Or, you know, look, this is these are some other things that the next time you have a circumstance like that, you should factor into your thought process. But yeah, show your work. I like show that. your work. I think that's really important. Let's talk security a little bit, right? We, at the <laughs> end of the day, we are in the business of security. You know, as a CISO, a lot of times people ask, you know, people ask me all the time to go, James, where do you spend what do you spend most of your time on? You know, what about you, Kevin? Where do you spend most of your time on in security? Yeah, you know, and I, I'm sure it differs a lot. You've got a very wide ranging audience, right? Depending on your on the business you're in and the expectations. For me, a lot of what my focus is on two things, right? One is on is on leading the team. And I don't mean managing the work, right? It's not like sitting in project status meetings. Did you do task A, B, or C, right? But it's truly in leading. Um, do we understand, you know, what our priorities are? Um, what are the roadblocks that may be in the way of our key initiatives that you need my help on? Are we taking care of our people, our team members, right? Um, so, so there's that piece. And then I'll, the, the, the most important piece to our business is the connection between what we're doing in security and fraud and the lines of business. So how are we engaged in, in what they're doing operationally to make sure we're supporting them? What are we doing to be aware of where they're trying to get so that we can be contributing to helping them move forward as fast as possible? Um, and how do we educate them on risk, right? One of the, I was talking to one of our former board members recently and her comment was, she said, you know, what's really important and that you're able to do in the boardroom is help translate security and technical risk into business terms so that business people can do it. Cause I remind folks sometimes that a big part of what we do organizationally is help inform the decisions that are being made, Right. I mean, the, the, the CEO of the company can make a decision I might not like and maybe puts the company at some risk. But if I need to make sure he's been fully armed with, here are the implications of that. Here's what that means in terms of security risk and reputational risk as far as cyber goes, potential financial impact. You know, you just need to have that whole picture as opposed to my job is just to think I say yes to some things and no to other things because it's never that nuanced. But that's probably the biggest and frankly, the most interesting part of the job. And I think that's where, um, you know, I see people struggle is how do you how do you be perceived as a business person as opposed to just just the chief security engineer? Yeah, that's a that's a very I think that's one of the biggest challenges for for security practitioners, especially when you put on the title of a CISO. Right. Is yeah. how do you go from traditionally, I think, our, our first generation of CISOs. Uh, a few decades ago, as as the role started becoming a bit more uh, more common, were known as the people of no and scary stories. Yeah, and that's that that reputation stuck with us. Yeah. For oh yeah, lot, go ahead, please. No, no, no. That 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 that's it. Yeah, the department of no. Yeah, the department of no, and the people who use fear to try to win things over. And I think we're starting to realize today that all of our greatest fears as security practitioners happened, but the end result that we thought was going to happen from it didn't take place. Meaning we felt like a massive cyber attack could take your, 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 your enterprise out of business. 
Well, we've seen with a lot of the big brand names and the cybersecurity breaches that they've gone through, that stock price has affected. Some people lose their jobs. There's some changes, but guess what? The guy who comes in, he's in for the, for the Cinderella role, right? Yeah. He's going to have yeah. all the money, all the leverage, all the leeway to do all the things in a way that really promotes that. And we see that with Jamil, you know, here sure. locally um, at Equifax. He's done an unbelievable job of rebuilding that security program and empowering people that, that are there to really drive that, to drive that forward. Um, yeah. but, you know, so, you know, if you spoke to someone, I remember um, <laughs> I had a early, excuse me, early on on the show, uh, when, when I first started doing the show, I had uh, a few people on who've been CISOs for 15, 20 years. And they talked about the evolution of the role in 15, 20 years, right? Doing being a CISO for 15 years and, and kind of the evolution of it. And they said that hey, we'd warn them that something would happen and we'd say that there are consequences. Well, it would happen, but the consequences never matched our expectations. Yeah. And I think now we can all look at this and go, if you're a small business, you can't afford me as a CISO. And if you go through a cyber incident, you're going to go out of business. It's shameful, but you're you're essentially the low-hanging fruit. But larger enterprises, we tend to be a little bit more resilient in our ability to handle a cyber incident, recover, and move on from it. Sure. So we, we look we look at that now, and you brought up the idea of being a business person, and I think that's that's the definition of it. As a yes. business person, I'm going to come and identify risk. That's why we've st- went from FUD to risk, right? Yeah, yeah. And we're winning the risk conversation. I really think we're winning the risk conversation. What do you think? Yeah, you know, I, I feel like that. And you, you, you sometimes can tell when you talk to your, your line of business partners, if you start hearing your own message coming back to you in their terms, you know it's kind of sinking in. You know, one of the first things I started doing, because I, 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 I stepped into a role where we were absolutely perceived as the people who just said no to everything. Right. right? So it's like, first thing I got to do is rebuild that with my business partners. Otherwise, we'll never be successful. And I would, I would try to position it and say, look, I fundamentally understand my job is not to keep you from doing things we need to do. Right. Because if you can't do your jobs and you can't produce revenue, you, you really don't need me. So my, my goal is the same as yours. Now, having said that, what I need from you is don't tell me how you choose for me to solve the problem. Tell me what it is you're trying to do so that we can work together to find something that I can live with from a security and risk perspective that still helps you do your job. And there's a whole universe of ways to solve the problem. So don't I'm not going to tell you no to everything. You just can't constrain me by telling me how you've chosen for me to solve the problem. I said, and then recognize that occasionally it will be something you want to do that is such a bad idea that I really have to say no. You need to respect sometimes no is going to mean no, that, that you just can't do that. This is a really bad idea. And I need to earn that from you by demonstrating there's a path forward that meets both our needs from a business perspective and a risk perspective, and it's a partnership. And, and I definitely feel culturally in six years, we're much further down the road. It's a productive discussion as opposed to kind of a confrontational thing. Which is which is great. It's a lot more fun that way. Yeah, it's um, it's it's much more fun that way. I think there's mm-hmm. a, I like to use the term partnership a lot in security, and I mean I look at it from a uh, security technology perspective, aka what a lot of people call vendors, yeah. and I look at it from a business perspective of my business partners within the organization. Now sure. you brought up something about your history. Uh, you said you used to, before you became a CISO, you were a third-party vendor risk management yep, kind of yep. person. Um, you know, I, I don't pity the people that do that for me today. How has that role changed over the last year? You know, if we look at, you know, the last seven months, we all woke up one December morning thinking we're all about to go to vacation. And the Russians and the Chinese decided that, hey, we're, we're going to go full-fledged uh, solar winds. Uh, FireEye, you name it. You know, when it was FireEye, we all kind of, our jaws dropped. Then SolarWinds, we all just kind of sat in our seats and held on like it's a roller, we're about to go on a roller coaster ride. That's also changed the conversation around vendor risk management. How do you think that conversation has changed from the time you did it to today? And what do you Um, think has been the big change? Yeah, dramatically, you know, as as I think about even just the last few years leading to that and then, then since now, you know, it used to be, 
you focused on, okay, I've got a process I'm going to go through. So I'm going to, you know, uh, I'm going to ask for SOC reports. I'm going to review those and I'm going to review people's plans. And I'll say, give me some evidence that you've tested your DR plan, your business continuity plan, right? And, and you'll look at paper and if it's really significant, you'll go on site and talk to people, right? And that was good enough that in hindsight, you sort of feel like you were checking the box. Then, you know, and you mentioned Jamil and what he's done at, at Equifax to transform that program. When, when their breach happened, you know, you started asking yourself, I know I asked my team, look, everything on paper looked good, right? So we're checking boxes and it wasn't good. So what do we need to do differently even back then to have a better understanding beyond what's on the paper? And then you take what's happened, you know, most recently. And then it takes you to a place that says, okay, not only I have to ask more and better questions, I have to figure out how to gain an understanding of stuff that's totally outside my wheelhouse, right? How do I understand your software development life cycle and your supply chain and what you're doing to protect it. And that's going to require knowledge and skills we don't necessarily have in your traditional internal third-party risk management. And how do you assess that risk, for one? And then on the other side, how do you try to become better aware at detecting those issues that may already be in your environment, as opposed to waiting until it becomes public? So it's a multi-pronged problem, and it's, 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 it is really complicated. It's a massive understatement of the day. Um, you know, it's, um, it's fascinating to me because you're absolutely right. And it, you, you kind of have to ask yourself the question. We talked about risk from a business perspective. Yeah. Let's look at it from a vendor risk management perspective. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That risk conversation is completely different now. Oh yeah. That, that you don't, you mean you look at companies where you're, you're where they're pulling data or giving you data and you look at them 10 times over and now the, the question becomes, what am I entitled to know? And now here comes the most controversial part of the show. What do I want to know but don't want to know? Because if I know it and I knew about it, then I can be held liable for it later on when something does really happen. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's some questions after you get the answer. Boy, I sure wish I hadn't asked that. Um, you know, the, the, the thing that always comes to mind with that though, is, you know, we'll occasionally get to talk to, to groups of our customers or prospects, right. Who are looking for advice about what do we do about the cyber stuff? And, you know, I always qualify it with, look, my issue, we all have the same fundamental issue. Size and scale is different. I said, but one guiding principle is, I said, you want to know as much as you can about what risks you actually have. So, cause the biggest risks are the ones you already have and don't know yet. If you know it, you've got some at least fighting chance to make a decision, I'm going to accept it, or I'm going to do something to mitigate it, or I'm going to try to buy enough insurance to transfer it. But you need to know that it's there. And I guess that's what kind of drives my thought process, because I'll lie awake at night worrying more about the stuff I should have known and didn't than the scary stuff I know about we just hadn't figured out yet, if that makes any sense. But You know, so, so that kind of brings up a very interesting point, right, which is the you brought up such a smart uh, point right there, Kevin, which is we all kind of have the same problems. The difference is the size and scale of that problem. Yeah. Also, you know, there, there, there's a few others. You can add talent in there. You can add, you know, infrastructure, knowledge, uh, modernization, all that good stuff that, that all kind of play a role. But inherently the bottom line kind of, you know, the stuff that you and I were worried about four years ago, we're still worried about today. Hasn't yeah. changed much. And my question to you is why? Why hasn't it changed much? Why can't we, you know, it used to be that, you know, you'd, you'd solve a problem and move on. Now it seems like we can't get that done. So so my question is why? Why do you think we still have those same four, you know, fundamental issues for so long? Yeah, boy, we could probably spend an hour on that. Your audience would appreciate that. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think part of it is that, that, if you th th think about how much the landscape you and I and all our colleagues have to deal with, how much wider it's gotten, right? I mean, it used to be kind of traditional, you know, uh, I built really tall walls around my castle and I dug a deep moat and I threw in more alligators when I needed to, right? But it was kind of, you know, it was here. This was my world and I could focus on it. And I had a set of things I had to defend it against. Now you don't have a perimeter anymore, Right. And you don't have all your people inside your walls because they're all working from home. They're working from the coffee shop. They're whatever, right? So the, the perimeter's gotten bigger and bigger. Um, I think we've gotten, in trying to solve each of those problems, 
we proliferate a lot of technologies that are really useful, but every one of those brings some other thing you need to do. You need to integrate it. You need to integrate all your um, monitoring and alerting systems with your SIM. You need to integrate your SIM with your ticketing management system, right? And you got to figure out how do I manage incident response? So you got all these connection points and your world gets more and more and more complex and risk lives inside all that complexity. And there's just that many more things to exploit. I mean, I think if, if any of us looked a decade ago at how many, how many different solutions you had in your security stack and how many you might have today, probably a lot larger number. Right. And, and I think that, that, you know, adds another dimension to it. You're, you're still fighting the same problem, but the battlefield has gotten um, much larger and, and sort of less defined. The whole idea of the perimeter doesn't really exist anymore. Yeah, you, that, that's um, perimeter and borders. We, we live in a borderless um, yeah. environment. Yeah. yeah. And that environment's only going to get more and more borderless, I think, as time goes along and we reinvent the workplace, um, yeah. you know, post-COVID. Because we are, I mean, uh, one of the trending stories this week is Apple's forcing everyone to come back into the office effective September. Uh, Monday, Tuesdays, and Thursdays, everyone's got to be in the office. And you know, they're, they're saying that in order to continue to be an innovative company, we need people to actually humanly interact within the confines of a traditional office. And, yeah. and I can see that because I think we can all do work away from work. But what, one of the things I, you know, I miss with my team is getting together in a room, having a huge whiteboard, sticking yeah. a problem out there and reading people's body language. And we're all zoomed out. We're all teamed out. We're all yeah. out. You know, most of the calls we do today, we don't even turn on video anymore. It used to yeah. be that, you know, when, when COVID first happened, everyone had video on. Your webcam was on all day long. We yeah. don't do that anymore, Kevin. Our, our, yeah. our, our cameras are off. We're, you know, we're, 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 we're done. We want to go have lunch outside. We want to go have dinner. It's summer, right? Yeah. People want to yeah. go out and, and, and kind of, you know, see other people. Yeah, and I, th I think there's we're going to have to reinvent the workplace, and it's going to bring back the walls. But I think it's also going to create a, a more borderless society than we. Yeah, expected. it's a great thought. I think we got to figure out how do we maximize the things we've learned from the pandemic, um, and apply them in a way that's going to make sense. Right. Right. There's things we should have learned about better practices around how we protect information and how we secure people connecting to the network. Right. Um, and how do we not lose those things and people's heightened awareness of stuff and risk? How do we not lose those, but transition back to where we regain the benefits of, you know, being being able to get in the room with folks, like you said, and see them in the eyes. Every time I see colleagues in the building now, which happens more often, I feel like I want to go hug everybody. It feels like I haven't seen people in decades. Right. Um, and and you, you got to figure out how do we marry both of those things up? That's going to be a big transition for a lot of businesses. Um to figure out how do you do it well and not just say, I'm going to put everything back the way it was 18 months ago. It's probably not the right answer in a lot of cases. Yeah. It, it's not only not the right answer, but I think even when you look at the traveling salesperson, even mm -hmm. that's changing. A lot of the traveling people are going to go back on the road, but now that you've hired outside of you. So it used to be that if you're an Atlanta based org, you hired in Atlanta and you either needed to move to live in Georgia and yeah. in, in the Atlanta metro area or you couldn't work for the organization. But during the pandemic, I started hiring in Columbus, Ohio, and Denver, Colorado, and Phoenix, Arizona, and, you know, uh, Billings, Montana. Yeah. And so now all of a sudden, I've got this distributed workforce, and those people are going to now be traveling because it's cheaper for me to take someone in Denver and send them to Salt Lake City than it is to take someone from Atlanta and send them to Salt Lake. But that person was never in the confines of my walls to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's a whole different paradigm and it creates yeah. great opportunities for people that are smart about how to, how to leverage it. Um, and, and, you know, just one last thing on that. And I talk about with my leadership team all the time. So you got to remember that, that we talk about remote work. We did, people can do anything for a year and a half when they're responding to a crisis, but if someone's going to be remote forever, that means forever. How are you going to lead them? How are you going to keep them engaged? How do they feel right. like they're part of your team and not just an independent contractor collecting a paycheck from you? We'll go to the next place because they don't have some kind of a bond and connection to it. Uh, you know, that's that's very interesting. Um, Renee Small, who, who's a recruiter, is talking about a lot of people who 
are quitting jobs where they're fully remote, even though they make good money to go to work that's taking them to the office. And some people who don't want to go back to the office who enjoy being remote are quitting companies <laughs> where they're remote. And and that's a very interesting um, movement that's going on where people who say, I need to be around people yeah. and my company is going full remote 100%. I don't like that. I want that huge... Some people need it for sanity purposes, even yeah. beyond anything. They want to get out of the house. They don't want to be at home all day. It's not healthy. Yeah. That meant, we live, you know, there's two things to talk about in security. One, this job is very, very stressful. It's very stressful. Yeah. And you said it, you're going to lose more times than you win. Yeah. And so, you know, that mental health, the idea of being able to talk to your people and, when they're around other people, you know, they go out and they have a drink after work, right? You know, yeah. after we do our AAR, everyone typically says, all right, we're all going to go have one drink and then everyone's going to go home and sleep for 24 hours and come back. <laughs> uh, but th- th- that's a human way of resetting and coming back in motivated, fresh again. Yeah, you're bruised and you're scratched and, you know, you just got drug across the floor. But at the yeah. same time, you did that as a team and now the yes, team yeah. comes back together when you're alone at home. It's a sense of shared purpose and identity that brings people together to rally them to work really hard on responding to a, a crisis or solving a problem. And yeah, people want to have that bond and, and it's, it's not the same when it's, you know, across zoom. Um, no, it's not. You, you, that's such a good leadership point. I didn't think about that, Kevin. The idea of if you're permanently away, how are you not different from a contractor? Yeah. I mean, you know, one thing I, I was thinking is even if we stay fully remote, you know, I'm I, I'm going to ask for all my budget still the same, right? Even the office budget, because I'm going to calculate my office cost. Yeah. Yeah. And every three months, I'm going to fly everyone someplace and have them spend three, four days together. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Sure. And and so you do that every three months. You bring them out Monday through Thursday somewhere. You you know you book a hotel, you book a resort, you take them somewhere mm-hmm. cool. You do you know five six hours of work. You divide it up over a day. You do three four hours of team building exercises and fun activities and whatnot. Um, it's 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 better than than nothing at all. Yeah yeah, and there's there's no single answer. I think it's just a whole bunch of stuff. You know, it's about. Tell people, think about it, just being relentless in how you communicate. Yeah. It's a lot of different things, a lot of different ways, because some things are going to work for some people differently than others. Just do all of it. When people come and tell me you're bothering me, I don't want the CISO to reach out to me too often. That's when I'll know I've hit the right point. Until then, I'll email you. We'll have a chat. We'll do you know a big team town hall meeting. We'll do all of those things just to try to keep people engaged in whatever way is going to work best for them. Yeah, and, and engagement is so important. How, how did you lead, you know, uh, kind of final question before we move on to our, to our uh, CISO insight round and, and learn a little bit more about you, Kevin, but uh, what were some of your best practices in leading a remote workforce during the last, you know, 18 months? Yeah, we were really intentional about, you know, some little things, like you mentioned early on about how everyone had their cameras on, turned them off. We try to set an example right from the start of have your video on. And I began to notice over time, we'd interact with other parts of the organization people would start doing that more because I just told people, I said, for me, it holds me accountable. If I've got my video on, I know I better be watching and not doing my email, right. Or wandered away from the desk. Right. Um, so little things like that. Uh, a lot of communications we started doing, um, you know, little, uh, we started people getting on every morning onto a, a, a team message board. Someone would get on there in the morning and throw out kind of the inspirational thought of the day. And then there would be, you know, other comments and questions and back and forth sort of work, but not necessarily work a little bit of a more personal thing. It kind of just the thing I want to go see what so-and-so had to say this morning, um, just to draw people to it. I started doing a, typically it was monthly, just an open chat to the entire team. You know, what questions you want to ask? Um, I reach out into the organization further down more now than I used to just to have one-on-one meetings with folks. Um, I used to do, kind of every couple of weeks and bring a random group of folks together for lunch. Um, now we just do it virtually. Bring your lunch to your to your, to your your Zoom or WebEx and we just chat. You know, it's me and eight or 10 people. What do you want to talk about for an hour? What's on your mind? What's working well? What questions do you have? Just all those things put together because I think communication is the most important thing. I always think, James, I'm beating it to death, but 
if we don't if we don't tell people what our message is, people can decide for themselves. Right. And generally speaking, the version they come up with themselves is always going to be worse. Yeah. If you don't like my message, that's okay. But I want you to hear it for me to not like it instead of imagining one for yourself. Yeah, people tend to. Uh, um, that's how conspiracy theories are born. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> that is it. That is how conspiracy theories are born. All right, Kevin, we're at the end of the show. Let's get to know you a little bit better. My, uh, my infamous, famous buzzword graveyard. What's the buzzword <laughs> you'd bury in that graveyard? Agile. Agile. Like and that. the reason why is I find it for people, it's often the justification for doing the wrong thing really, really fast. <laughs> we, don't have, we don't have time to think about security because we're busy being agile. So, yeah. Either we're going to learn learn what it really means, or bury it bury it in the the buzzword. So, how reason. scary is it when your security partner sends you an email that says we're the most agile security? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's one tech that will forever change cyber? Artificial intelligence, and I almost put that into the buzzword category. But here's why I landed on it: it addresses both sides, right? For us as practitioners. Right. I mean, in terms of situational awareness and ability to respond and real time remediation, hugely important. But the other reason I have it in, in there is that the bad guys are going to use it the same way to be even more sophisticated in how they come after us. So I think it, it's vitally important on both sides. It's going to change the threat landscape, continue to change the threat landscape and also change our ability, give us more and better tools to, to do our jobs. Love that. What's uh, the book you're reading now or last book you read if you're not reading anything? Yeah, no, the last one I read, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you the quick backstory. So with the Olympics coming up, I'm a big sports guy. And right before the pandemic lockdowns, I met a lady named Lindsay Shoup at a dinner in New York City. It was one of these dinners where you don't tell people what you do. You, you only go by first names. You all work together to make dinner. And then you try to guess what everybody else did. It turned out she was an Olympic gold medalist in women's rowing. And at that point, she was working on writing her book. So she wrote the book, and it was fascinating. She went from being a junior at the University of Virginia, out of shape, unmotivated, to being an Olympic gold medalist in rowing with no rowing background in six years. It was amazing. But the things I learned about leadership and commitment and dedication to your craft and teamwork were just fascinating. So I had the personal connection. And it was just a great story. That's awesome. Well, I'll be rooting for her at the Olympics this year. <laughs> the Olympics start in a few weeks, right? I mean, we're they waiting do. for the year out of finish for the Olympics to start. I mean, if you're a sports fan, this summer is oh, yeah. the ultimate. I mean, I've been watching the Euro religiously uh, yeah. every single day. Like, we'll, we'll be on work calls, and my iPad here uh, will have the game <laughs> running. You know, and, and I've been on, guilty on a few calls where people, you know, are talking and then they see my facial expression like, oh, and they're like, James, what's wrong? And I'm like, nothing, nothing, nothing. You know, uh, Italy just missed the near goal. Yeah, nothing, uh, nothing crazy. Just my heart dropped. But I would highly recommend Better Great Than Never by Lindsay Shue because I learned a lot about rowing, which wasn't my objective. Um, but I'll watch that sport with a much greater appreciation uh, when the Tokyo Olympics start for sure. That's awesome. I, I can't wait to uh, for, for the Olympics to get started as well. Yep. What's the last movie you saw? So my wife and I love to rewatch classic movies. And the uh -huh. last one, when we see them on, the last one we saw was Breakfast at Tiffany's. And <laughs> I'll watch that movie anytime it's on, right? I mean, it's, it's right. set in New York City, which is where I was born and grew up. Love that. Um, it's a cute love story, happy ending. It's got Audrey Hepburn. And she was just so funny and so elegant. I would just watch anything she was in. It turned out to be just a great personal she, Things she did with charity and everything else through her, through her later life. So, I, I will say it's the same for me. Only it's with Goodfellas. If Goodfellas is on at any point period in time, it's a yeah. anything Scorsese or Tarantino for me is like I can watch Pulp Fiction yeah. once a yeah. week and never be bored from Pulp Fiction. <laughs> it's just a great movie. It's it's, an, it's, it's oh, a yeah. great film. Yep. Um, your favorite music? Classic rock would be my go-to. I, I think that, you know, my wife and I were talking about this. My, my think it is that your taste in music tends to get formed at that point in your life and you listen to it a lot. And a lot of people, that's why you're in college. It's in college in Atlanta, tons of great bands coming through. So what is now classic rock was, 
you know, what I was, what I was growing up on back then. So I have a lot of stuff on my playlist. That's my go-to. What's one thing you took away from solar winds? Um, how resilient people are. Yeah. You know, I I think about, you know, the last 15, 18 months. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here in my office. I'm thinking, you know, middle of March last year, we just walked out and told everybody, pack your pack your stuff and go home. Right? Just go. We'll figure it out. And, and the way people just stayed focused, kept you in their job, responded, supported one another. Um, you know, really amazing. Great lesson in resilience at the individual level and then at kind of the enterprise level. Kevin, uh, thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule to be on the show. So much fun, James. This was, uh, was great. Thanks for having me. So much wisdom. And with that being said, I want to say one last thing about what Kevin said, because it is, I think, the perfect ending to this episode. We are more resilient and more together than anyone seems to think. I know that if you read a paper or watch a click on any link on any story from anywhere, it seems like everyone's divided and hates each other. Um, That's not the case, folks. I think people are more united than ever. And don't let the fringe talk you off the ledge. Just look at the people around you or hugging you, the coworkers, the family and friends, your neighbors and your community. And remember that those people is really all we ever needed was our community. Mr. Rogers said it best, right? Um, who are the people in your neighborhood? So yeah. uh, know who those people are. And if you like them and love them, then you know, you're, you're blessed beyond any measure. And in the yeah. cybersecurity community, we are all blessed beyond measure because, man, I have seen the best parts of this community over the last 15, 18 months. Yeah, for um, sure. From people stepping up to the CTI League to so many other organizations that have come through and, and people that have taken time out of their lives and days to help others who couldn't do it. Um, we're definitely a movement to be reckoned with. So we'll end on that high note, everyone. Thank you so much for watching today's episode. Thank you to Kevin um, for being on the show. Uh, Make sure to subscribe. Make sure to follow. You can see uh, Kevin's uh, LinkedIn link will be in the show notes. You can go and connect with Kevin. Kevin, are you on any other social media outside of LinkedIn? LinkedIn's it right now. Brilliant. That's that's where you should stay. Don't go anywhere else. (laughs) Don't do it. Keep it a low profile. (laughs) Forget a low profile. You don't want to see the other spots. You You just don't want to do it. Folks, make sure to subscribe if you're watching us on YouTube and uh, turn on the notification bell below. And if you're listening on your favorite podcast listening platform, please make sure to give us a five-star rating and rate today's episode. We're always grateful for that. Till next week, have a great rest of your day. Have whenever you're listening to this, wherever you are in the world, thank you so much. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Sissel Talk. Till then, stay cyber safe. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends and colleagues. And get all the latest information at cyberhubpodcast.com.